This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. We have our first guest on the line with us right now, and she is Jill Gonzalez making a return appearance. She is an analyst with Wallet Hub, which is a personal finance website based in Washington, D.C. And Jill Gonzalez, welcome to the Political Insider. Thanks for having me back. Well, you all are well-known for publishing periodic reports on a variety of issues, and you rank the states and how they are faring uh, in these categories. Uh, And I think you've done it in the past. Just before the 4th of July, you come out with a ranking of uh, most patriotic states in America. And this year you came out with a report uh, this week And among the 50 states, a plus one, (laughs) the District of Columbia, I think Michigan came out last. And I just would like you to explain what criteria do you use to come up with this report and uh, why Michigan did so badly? Absolutely. So we looked at patriotism in, you know, a scientific way, or at least tried to. We looked at 13 different indicators of patriotism, and that ranges from the state's military enlistees and veterans to the share of people who voted in the last election to volunteer rates and things like Peace Corps and AmeriCorps volunteers. So we looked at it both in terms of military and in terms of civics, and that's where Michigan ranked in the bottom five. It ranked 47 out of all 50 states. So we weren't quite at the bottom, but I think only uh, New York, Connecticut, and Florida rank lower than we did. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, is there anything in particular that Michigan came up short on uh, that caused it to finish so low? Well, when it comes to military engagement, there's not a lot of active military enlistees, active duty military personnel uh, not a lot of veterans either. I mean, there are certainly some, but there are other states that have more of a military presence, more bases, et cetera. And then as far as civics, the voter turnout could be a little bit higher in Michigan. Uh, the volunteer rate could be a little bit higher. Even things like jury participation and civics education requirements were things that we looked at. So what were the best states? Uh, in being patriotic, in your opinion? So some of the states that ranked higher, and a lot of this, again, has to do with either military presence or civics requirements, but number one was Montana, actually, followed by Alaska, Maryland, Vermont, and New Hampshire. Is there any particular reason why those states, uh, in addition to the criteria that you just listed, uh, finish that high? I mean, these are relatively low population states compared to some of the biggest states, most prominent states. Well, you have a state like Alaska that obviously did very well in terms of military engagement. And then you have, you know, a state like Maryland, which is very close to the District of Columbia that has much more of a civic engagement quality. Well, you also have a a number of what I'd call 
subcategories where, um, for instance, there's one called uh, highest hospitalization rate. And I noticed that Michigan is very low in that, um, 46 tied with West Virginia, I believe. Now, what does that mean? Uh, and is it good or bad to be at the bottom of that? So now we're switching reports. Now we're talking about the states that are recovering the quickest from COVID-19. Uh, so a different report here. And there we have essentially five metrics. Uh, we have uh, everything looking from COVID health to leisure and travel to the economy and the labor market. So all of those things uh, kind of ranking how safe a state is. And we update this every couple of weeks. Michigan ranked at the very bottom for this last iteration of the report. And that, again, has to do with things like hospitalization rates due to COVID-19, where Michigan ranked about seven times higher than some of the best states. And that just means that Michigan still has a lot of COVID-19 to stomp out still. Yeah, I jumped over to that second uh, report or study you issued, and it was about two weeks ago. And I think overall wasn't... um, Michigan at the very bottom of that one. I mean, 51st, uh, even including the District of Columbia, we were 51st overall with this 46 high with West Virginia for highest hospitalization rate. Is that correct? That's right. So Michigan ranked last year. uh, And one of the reasons why was because of COVID health and high hospitalization rate numbers and vaccination rate numbers that could be higher. So how you're saying last year, you mean like where do you happen to know where did Michigan finish last year in this survey? Last year, this did not exist. So this is something we've started doing as states are recovering from COVID-19. Okay. Um, The Patriots thing, though, you did do last year, right? The patriotism we did do last year. We changed the metrics a little bit, though, so I wouldn't recommend a year-to-year comparison. So do you think uh, Michigan did any better last year than it did this year, you know, tied for 47th in uh, patriotism? And uh, this year, uh, how did it do last year? Do you have those statistics? So we added some metrics, so I wouldn't do a direct comparison. Uh, But, you know, when it comes to things like Military enlistees, I don't see Michigan really doing better, right? It's not like a base popped up or disappeared overnight. And when it comes to uh, civics, that's where, you know, obviously 2020 was an election year. Um, So that's where it probably did a little bit worse. Yeah. I noticed that you try to define what are the characteristics of a good patriot. And you say patriotism is about loyalty and attachment to a particular place and or way of life. A good patriot exhibits dedication to that way of life, et cetera, et cetera. Are are there things beyond being a patriot? I mean, we think of people in red, white, and blue hats out at patriotic rallies, but there's a lot more to it than that, right? Right. I mean, speaking of rallies, we've had so many in the past couple of years. And I think that a good patriot is one to point out a country's flaws just as much as to point out its strengths. You know, you want to make your country better. I think that's a very patriotic thing. So I think that's important. I think, you know, showing that you care about what can get better about your country is just as patriotic about singing its praises. 
Is there a link between socioeconomic class and level of patriotism? I think maybe at one time there was. I think now we're seeing people of all socioeconomic classes be more vocal about, again, the country, about what's going on, about taking a stand. So I think that's leveled out a little bit. What measures should schools and local authorities undertake in order to promote patriotism among our citizens? Well, one thing that we looked at here was civics education requirements, and some states have them. In other words, they make sure and they they essentially have students take a class in civics and in history to, in order to pass. Uh, very few states do that at the high school education level, and I think we could see more states doing that. How many of these studies and reports do you issue every year, Wallet Hub? We issue about three a week. Three a week? Wow. So, I mean, literally, you, you mean you come up with like 150 of these studies and reports over the course of a calendar year? We do, yes. Well, listen, <laughs> you've given us a great overview of what Wallet Hub has done and continues to do. Really outstanding work. I know a lot goes into it. Unfortunately, Michigan isn't doing too well in a couple of very important categories. That is recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic and in our standing among the states in terms of patriotism. But we got to do better, Jill. So when you come back to this, you can give us better marks. Thank you, Jill Gonzalez, analyst with Wallet Hub, for being our guest. We'll be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the line with us Rob Ritchie. He is president and CEO of Fair Vote, which is an organization devoted to what is called ranked choice voting. Rob Ritchie, thanks for being our guest. I appreciate the chance to talk again, Bill. Okay, um, you had, when I say you, I mean fair vote and apostles of ranked choice voting, the biggest, highest turnout election in American history using ranked choice voting, as far as I know, in New York City in the mayoral election primaries that were held on Tuesday of this past week. Is that correct? And tell us uh, if that is true and what it means. Yes, that was the, the the largest electorate for a citywide ranked choice voting election, and the biggest number of offices ever, and um, quite a quite a quite a fascinating uh, challenge and opportunity for rolling out in, in in the city. Almost every seat was open, uh, from from the mayor on down to most city council seats and several uh, borough presidents and and um, uh, you know other citywide offices and. Democrats had many, many crowded primaries. Republicans had a handful on uh, their side in some key, key races. And righteous voting really makes a lot of sense in those kind of crowded fields. And I think New York City is going to be a, a, a really good marker for us of, of how it works. Yeah, I should point out that New York City is a city where you run on a partisan ticket. You run as a Democrat or Republican or if there's a splinter party, whatever, whereas a lot of municipalities uh, elect their mayors on a nonpartisan basis. But uh, what was the turnout like in New York City? After all, this was 
a new experiment for them. They had never used ranked choice voting. And explain what ranked choice voting really means. Yeah, so first, um, turnout was, you know, I always would like to see more people vote, but it was really good in New York City terms. It was the, the largest turnout since at least 1989. And since when, say, the current mayor, Bill de Blasio, won his uh, first primary back in 2013, about um, looks like about a third more voters participated, maybe even more than that. So it, it didn't it did get a lot of people voting despite all the you know challenges of, of a campaign where COVID, you know, kept kept the candidates from campaigning in person for most of the spring and so on. And um, what a ranked choice system is, is essentially taking what we do now and I just think making it better. It's it's. It's, you know, everyone has one vote, but, the, but there's a new element. You get a backup to your vote to make sure it counts. And so what that means is that you, rather than just pick one and just hope, hope you pick the right person, you can pick one and then you can say, who's my second choice and who's my third choice? So that's where the term rankers voting comes from. And then you can use those rankings to kind of help the ballot work for your interests. You count all the first choices up, and if someone wins more than half of the vote right off the bat in first choices, then you have a winner, and that's that. But if not, if you have someone with less than 50% or all of them with less than 50%, the candidate in the last place is eliminated, the very last place candidate, and their ballots are examined, and then their second choices come into play. They, they go to their next choice as if those voters had a chance to you know, do a runoff. And then you just do that sequentially from the bottom up, um, went till you get down to two. And when you get down to two, you'll have a, a head-to-head direct comparison of the two strongest candidates. So you'll get results like, you know, 55% to 45%. And you won't get people winning with, say, just 23% or, or some small margin, which we've had some really big races in the last few years, one with, you know, those kinds of small, small percentages. Yeah, well, as I understand it, uh, in New York, they chose to give you five choices. Uh, there were eight candidates in the Democratic primary, but you could vote one through five. I mean, what if somebody just voted for three and somebody else voted for four yeah. and somebody voted for two? It doesn't make any difference, right? Uh, it just continues Correct. on. Yeah. It's just, yeah, you, 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 it's, all, it's always up to the voter. You can pick one and you're, you're completely fine. It's just those rankings are backup. So if you pick one and you say, hey, that's my person. If they win, I'm happy. If they lose, I'm sad, but I, but I don't care about anybody else. That's it you're fine. But if you do have a preference among any of the other candidates, which I think a lot of us in those kinds of races do, you can say, well, here's, here's my second choice and so on. We expect probably about 90% of New Yorkers will indicate a second choice, and a majority will probably use all five of their rankings. Now, the rankings will only count for one person in the final count, right? But, but they will have these backups to make sure that their, their, their vote is counted. Rob Ritchie, as I understand it, a candidate named Eric Adams, who I think is the Brooklyn City Council president and a former cop, a former policeman, um, he finished first initially. I think he got about 32 percent of the vote, and he was followed by, uh, it looks like, either Maya Wiley or Catherine Garcia. And there's a question with this ranked choice system, uh, who's it going to get down to if Adams cannot get over 50 percent by the time you get to a direct face-to-face uh, contest uh, counting the votes. Uh, does it make a difference whether uh, Garcia or Wiley finished second? I think they came in with around 22 percent, 21, 20 percent, about 10 percent behind Adams on the initial count, right? 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting. There were actually 13 candidates, eight that got to be in debates and things, and then another five, you know, less smaller candidates. Um, but uh, so what they need to do in the tally now that they know they don't have a majority winner in the first round, and they're going to run this on Tuesday, by the way, they're being careful, you know, making sure they got all the ballots lined up right. When they finally do it, it's just pushing the button and it'll be pretty instant, but they're being careful and just processing ballots. Anyway, when they get to that point, It'll be a sequential elimination. So the candidate 13th will be out, then the candidate 12th, and the candidate 11th, and, and so on. It will get down for sure to those three people that you mentioned. But the order between Wiley and Garcia may change during that tally because you know, people like Andrew Yang um, are, was also in the contest, the former Democratic presidential candidate. He finished fourth, and he, was, uh, he publicly recommended and actually campaigned with Garcia and said, she's my second choice. I hope you rank her second. So when he goes out, you know, we will see what his voters do. Some of them will rank Adams. Some of them will rank Wiley. Some will rank Garcia. Some might not rank anybody. But they may go more to Garcia and then push her into second. At this point, Adams has a pretty clear advantage over everybody head-to-head. And we'll just have to see. But he, I think, uh, surveys that we did and others did show that he was a very sort of strong candidate when matched up against anybody else. One thing about ranked choice elections held throughout the country at various levels over the years, uh, if people are worried that whoever finishes first is not going to be declared the winner, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, over 96% of the results turn out to be uh, the winner being the same person who was leading the pack in the initial count. Uh, it's not like uh, you get some weird uh, result to many people where the person who would finish second or third in an ordinary election in most of the country uh, would somehow catapult into first place and win it. That only happens less than 4% of the time. Is that correct? Yes, correct. It's it's when the race is where it could happen in the sense that there's no first round winner. It's about one out of eight times. It's about. Uh, but when you look at all the races, including all the ones where someone wins 50 percent in the first round, then you're right. It's uh, only four percent. But it also speaks to two things. One, it, it, it generates results that we can anticipate, you know, seem reasonable. And two, when it happens, it means that there was a majority that was split between other candidates. And the ranked sorting sort of heals that split and gets a more representative outcome. Thank you, Rob Ritchie, President and CEO of Fair Vote, the champions of ranked choice voting, which is gathering steam as a new way to vote in America, everywhere. Thank you, Rob Ritchie. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate the chance to talk. We will be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have a really fascinating guest on the line with us. He's been on before, but not for a long time. He is Jim Haveman, and uh, he was a director of the State Department of Mental Health back in the early 1990s uh, when John Engler was governor. Then mental health was combined with public health into a new department called community health, and he took over that directorship uh, through the end of the Engler administration, I believe. And then, after a hiatus of eight years, Rick Snyder was elected governor, and guess who we appointed director of community health? Jim Haveman, again. 
So he has been a, a State Department director a total of 14 years over the last three decades. I think that's longer by far than anybody directing any department in state government, if I'm not mistaken. So, Jim Haveman, thanks for being our guest. I'm glad to be here today, Bill. Well, now, Jim Haveman, you have been doing um, reports and updates regarding charges against former State Department of Health and Human Services. That's the successor department to the one you headed, uh, Health and Human Services, Director Nick Lyon, since he was charged a second time in January of this year. Um, can you start out with like four years ago this week when he was first indicted by Attorney General Bill Schuette, uh for manslaughter regarding Legionella in Flint and the deaths that it supposedly called, and then on into the future? How do you describe that whole narrative? Well, Nick found out in 2016 about a Twitter uh, announcement that he was going to be indicted for these manslaughter charges from Bill Schuette. So this has been now six years. And as you know, they went through with Todd Flood and the charges were dropped. And then Dana Nessel came in as attorney general and then Fadwa Hawood took it up and then recharged him this past January, along with Kim Worthy, the prosecutor in, in Wayne County. Now they're back into it again. And they used a one-man grand jury, and now they've refiled charges against Nick and, and eight others. So that's kind of where things are at right now. Yeah, that's a quick sum up. By the way, Todd Flood that Jim Haven just mentioned was the special prosecutor that Bill Schuette appointed to uh, run the charges and run the case against Nick Lyon. And after nearly two years, uh, he uh, quit when Dana Nessel, the new attorney general, took over. And she, two years ago, dismissed all the charges. But she said, don't worry, I could be back, kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator, I'll be back. And sure enough, in January of this year, she was, and she refiled the charges. So, I mean, how, you know, taxing has this been on Nick Lyon? I mean, this is unbelievable. This has been hanging over his head for, like, even more than four years, you could say six years altogether, and there's still no near resolution, right? No, and then they used the grand jury in 2020 and then charged him in 2021 in January, and they still do not see uh, what they've been charged with because it has not been provided to them. And there was a hearing yesterday with Nick, Director Lyon, and several others, and it was uh, adjourned till next October. So here we are going through all summer. And and the uh, only the, the prosecutor, the attorney general, says there's 20 million documents that they have, which they're going to turn over to the defendant attorneys. But to date, they've only turned over three million. And some of that has been a client attorney privileged information, which should not be turned over to defense attorneys. There should be a tank team that determines what's usable and what's not usable. That was not done by the attorney general. And it's just a sign of being clumsy. It's uh, it should have been done. It's been done with Rudy Giuliani. Uh, but it's not being done here in Michigan. And uh, so there's a lot of flaws to this case, in my opinion. There was a uh, charge made by, I think, defense attorneys and others uh, for other uh, people who have been charged, not just Nick Lyon, trying to get a judge in Genesee County to say, using the one-man grand jury 
is very unfair for reasons I think you pretty much described just now. And this week, if I'm not mistaken, that judge ruled, well, you know, uh, whatever you say about a one-man grand jury, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It was perfectly uh, appropriate for the attorney general to use this. Uh, That, I think, is being appealed, the judge's decision that a one-man grand jury is okay. Uh, We don't know where that's going to go. How do you look at that whole situation, and why did did Dana Nessel decide that she wanted to use a one-man grand jury? Well, they, Dana Nessel said, and 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 uh, Special uh, Prosecutor Fadwa Hamoud, who's had a hand in the criminal side, said at the hearing that she used the grand jury because it's cheaper. Uh, in in many ways, the one-man grand jury is used because you only get one side of the evidence, and so there's no other side of the evidence being presented. So the judge, and quite honestly, Bill, the judges involved in Flint, they're elected by the Flint citizens. Um, it's tragic what happened in Flint, uh, but but I don't think people are going to get a fair hearing on any case in Flint. Well, um, going forward, what do you think? There is there a possibility that maybe the results of a one-man grand jury will eventually get thrown out or ruled well, illegal by some higher court on appeal? It's, it it could be, and it and it could be that it's going to take another judge in a court of appeals or the Supreme Court or some other who's further distance from the Flint politics because, you know, you don't see the Genesee County Health Department being charged in here. They knew not about the Legionella. Nick is being charged with lead, which is the, the tragedy at Flint. He's being charged with Legionella, and the Legionella, according to the CDC report, has been in the Flint water since 2008 and in McLaren Hospital's water since 2008. So, to 2019. So, and all the people that that director lines being charged of uh, leading to their death were at one time during that time at McLaren Hospital in Flint. Right, and I believe none of these people actually are residents of Flint. Is that correct? They may be out in Genesee County, which is the county that Flint is located in, but yeah, which which is not hooked up to Flint water. Right, exactly. As you say, this isn't really directly uh, connected with lead poisoning in Flint's water system. I mean, it's just kind of, let me ask you, um, Legionella, has it been absolutely medically and biologically proven that it kills people? Or is it just a contributing factor when they have underlying conditions? It's a contributing factor, and Legionella is present everywhere. I mean, one thing I learned as a public health director is the number of viruses and diseases that exist around us, and some of us are, are receptive to it and some are not. But uh, it's a bacteria, and uh, it's, it's in water, it's in, uh, it's in pipes, uh, and uh, going untreated, it, can, it can, can, can be pretty deadly combined with other chronic conditions. Well, what about the local health department? I don't know whether it's the city of Flint or Genesee County or whatever. I mean, they knew supposedly about the presence of Legionella, but they aren't being charged with anything, are they? Nope, nope. They knew about the Legionella outbreak way before the, the state did. And uh, and why aren't they engaged? Why is it the uh, DEQ involved here they're in charge of the water where is the decision of the people to switch the uh, pipeline who were building a pipeline and what's the involvement of the 
city commission and the county board of commissioners. And, you know, there's been a, I've always said this has been a political uh, charge and people were politically charged and uh, some were charged, some weren't. And if you notice, there's a lot of bureaucrats charged. And uh, and I think it, it comes down to that. And that's why I've always said this is a political uh, witch hunt. Who's paying for all this anyway? I uh, mean, you and I, you and I, the, the first the first go around with Todd Flood costs about thirty five million. Uh, right now, uh, according to a FOIA that I did, there are thirty people working on from the attorney general's staff, and which is about four to six million a year, and uh, that doesn't include witnesses and all the travel that they're doing, uh, and they're trying to nickel and dime the attorneys. There is something in Michigan law that says the state will pay or shall pay, but uh, not will. Wow. Listen, we got to take a short break, but there's more to this story, and we're going to hear about it from Jim Haveman, former director of the State Department of Community Health. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the line with us Jim Haveman, a former director of the State Department of Community Health, before that mental health, um, 14 years. He was a department director in state government longer than anybody in recent history and maybe ever. Uh, and we have been discussing the Flint water crisis litigation, the charges that have been made against uh, former Department of uh, Health and Human Services, Nick Lyon, and a bunch of others. Uh, He has laid out the scenario, the narrative. Uh, But some of the things that have been percolating along came to a head this week. What were they, Jim Haveman? Uh, In in Judge Kelly's court in Flint on yesterday and Thursday, and... uh, they basically told the judge that they just don't have the material. Um, for, for instance, Jared, who was the uh, governor's chief of staff, was charged with perjury. He still doesn't know the the uh, what he said that he was charged with perjury. They just haven't told him yet. So this is like somebody arresting you or I, Bill, and then saying, you say, why am I being charged? And they say, well, we can't tell you. And so how do you prepare? And so he still hasn't the information. They they haven't provided, and yesterday was kind of a hearing of the judge to see how much information has been provided to the defendants. So only three, uh, three million of the 20 million pages. There's been client, attorney privilege information shared, which should not be shared, and also people aren't getting lists of witnesses that were reviewed, and they've only done 36 of the 46 transcripts that should have been done prior to folks being charged. So it's it's kind of so the judge finally said, well try to get it done by October. So they just adjourned everything to October. So another four or five months. That's really unbelievable. Let me ask you, though, uh, despite the fact the defendants have not gotten any evidence of the nature of the charges against them yet, eventually they will. And at that point, wouldn't you think a fair-minded judge, assuming there is such a creature in Genesee County, would give the defendants and the defendant's legal counsel ample time to go through everything uh, because even though it's been delayed, they haven't had this information, which they probably sh- arguably should have had when the one-man grand jury was completed. 
uh, they will have it at that point, and they could consistently argue, this is the defense for Nick Lyon and others, we need time to digest this. We're getting it for the first time. And a judge, I would think, would have to say, take as much time as you need, and when you're ready, we'll go forward. Now, that could be October of 2022 or 2023, I, right? The fact, that it took, and it took, the fact that it took me five months from January to May to get a FOIA answer by the Attorney General Nestle's office tells me they are delaying. And they don't want this case tried. Uh, they, they, they are gonna. This will not be tried. I, I predict until after the 22 election. Uh, they don't want to get this caught up in politics. Even though you know and I know that Lansing's in a, a, a political can uh, re-election mode right now, and uh, I don't think this will get tried before before uh, uh, 22. There was something else that happened this week, bankruptcy. How the heck did that enter into all this? Well, that's very interesting because uh, Judge Tucker, who was the judge involved in Detroit bankruptcy, you know, did not, you know, wanted material sealed. And and some of that sealed material is has been sent by the attorney general's office to various defendant attorneys that says a client privileged information on it or sealed. And the Governor Snyder's judge, uh, attorneys went to the judge and said, hey, this is wrong. And the judge kind of told the attorney general that you cannot do this and ordered him back in a month. And uh, the governors and the other defendant attorneys have to come in and examples of where client privilege information is being shared publicly. And in my opinion, that should scare everybody who's listening to this program and in the state. A client, client attorney privilege is sacred. And it cannot be used against you, period. Yeah. Jim Haven, uh, let me ask you about, I think, one of the overarching uh, concerns about this entire escapade, and that is the ramifications on state employees, not just directors of departments like you, but maybe others in state government being afraid to exercise their duties uh, in the future, because they think, uh, look, what is, happened in Flint and what happened to people involved with the Flint water crisis could happen to me. I could be sued. I could be ruined. Uh, what was your experience in the past? Uh, if you were faced uh, when you were director with a climate like the one we've got right now, how would that complicate your life? It would complicate it tremendously. Everybody would become risk averse. We have some of the best epidemiologists. We have hundreds of them in the state of Michigan and in the counties. They do their job, but they do it in an insightful way. They develop patterns they, they, and causes, and they, they trace out a direction. You don't do that overnight. They're scientists. But I can remember just dozens of times when we closed state institutions and then six months later, somebody gets hit by a car. They wanted to blame me for closing the state institutions. Uh, I had TB issues, hepatitis issues, Ebola issues, flu issues, the virus issues, norovirus. Look at COVID-19. What we know now compared to what we knew when. Decisions were made by the governor on nursing home. She made with the best decision she had at the time. Sure, things have changed. Should we go back and sue the governor? and charge her with a criminal intent of the deaths of people in nursing homes? I don't think so, but some people are trying to do so. Uh, the no-fault insurance, there's going to be 6,000 people as of July 1 who leave the no-fault coverage for attendant care. Some are going to die. Should some of them be charged because of those decisions by the Michigan legislature? 
This has permeated all part of Lansing right now, and it's not healthy. And there's a fear of making decisions. Bill Schuette is a Republican. Dana Nessel is a Democrat. They're both attorneys general. And yet it looks to me like they've basically taken the same proactive, uh, aggressive prosecution that they have taken, uh, regardless of party or whatever. Is this just something about being attorney general, do you think, uh, that compels them to do this? I mean, maybe they're right, but there's a strong argument about whether these charges, the initial shooty charges and the Dana Nessel charges should have been launched, and if so, how they're being handled. I mean, would some other public official or public body be better equipped to make judgments on whether prosecutions of this sort should happen? Well, in some of the states, like Illinois, I think the, <laughs> they, they had a similar situation, and they said, no, we're not going to do this. this. This is part of being a, a public public figure. The civil, se- civil settlement in Flint was $641 million. A billion dollars had been spent in Flint in various services, improving the lead pipes. There's lead pipe problems in every state. So I think the civil is enough. Why do we need to do the criminal? And uh, uh, these are going to be extremely hard to prove. Uh, we already know that the Legionella, and quite honestly, Bill, the fact that McLaren can be part of the civil suit, and if that's settled, is totally immune from any responsibility for the Legionella in the pipes is is a, is is just wrong, and I don't think people fully understand that. Where do you see this going right now? Is everything on hold up in Flint until October, as you say, or just the charges against Nick Lyon? I mean, there's so many everything. judges up there and so many courts. I can't keep track of it. And you're not the only one, so don't feel bad. Uh, everything's on. Every they'll continue to release information, but the, it'll be slowed down because of the bankruptcy court is saying, look at attorney general, you cannot submit anything out there that has attorney client privilege on it. And I want to see examples. So they're being really careful now until that hearing. Um, and, uh, and, and the, and the Flint judges are saying, come back October and give us a status report. So still it, people are having a hard time preparing these cases because they don't know what the specific charges are. It, it's a, it's a, it's a cluster and it's clumsy and, uh, it's either incompetence or malfeasance. I don't know which one, but it's it's it hasn't been a healthy experience for anybody. What about the change of venue argument? Has that been put to rest? I mean, obviously that has come into play from the very beginning. People are saying in the general public and the news media, "Hey, how can you get a fair trial in Flint and in Genesee County? Uh, this should be moved to another venue." But hasn't there been a ruling on that? I don't think there's been a specific ruling, but there's a general feeling that it eventually will end up with another venue. Wow. Well, unfortunately, this is going to drag on. I agree with you, Jim Haveman, well past the 2022 general election. God knows what election will recede into the rearview mirror in the future before it's eventually settled. Thank you, Jim Haveman, former director of the State Department of Community Health, for giving us a real insight into what's going on with litigation on the Flint water crisis. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back next week with still more.